The following message is from the 2013 IBCD Summer Institute, Churches Equipped to Care. Okay, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege of standing before you in Jesus Christ our Lord, not being condemned. And Lord, we are adopted by you, we've been justified, your wrath's been taken away, and now you're our heavenly Father. Help us, Lord God, to want to please you. Help us to have such a relationship with you like your son did, that we could say, like Jesus, uh, whatever I say, I'm just saying what I heard the Father say. Whatever I'm doing, it's just what I've seen the Father doing, so that all glory might go to you. Lord, this is a difficult topic. We pray that you help us to get through it and uh, think and ask critical questions. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, uh, this is counseling people with psychological diagnoses. Uh, now, how did I come up with this topic? Somebody gave it to me. Right. Just a real short uh, history. Uh, almost annually, my wife and I, since 2001, go to the Czech Republic. Our church here, when we were here 24 years down in Chula Vista, has missionaries in the Czech Republic. Czech Republic, you know, they've been there since 1982. If you know anything of the history, there was the Velvet Divorce in 18, uh, 1988 where they became free from the Soviet uh, control. And then they went through the Velvet Divorce where Czechoslovakia was broken down into the two original parts, which was the Czech Republic and Slovakia. And we go to the Czech Republic and uh, the Farniks are the missionary couple. Um, yeah, Farnik is actually a Czech name. Jerry's fa grandfather emigrated from the Czech Republic to Hingham, Montana. Now, you probably have never heard of Hingham, Montana. It has 200 people in it, okay? about 15 miles from the Canadian border. And uh, he grew up, uh, you know, blood brother to an American Indian because they played sports together and got opera lessons from the guy on the next farm in lieu of working for the Roundup one day a year branding calves. And he got opera lessons, voice lessons, went to university, got converted there. And in 82, he went into the Czech Republic under the guise of being an opera student to learn opera in Prague. And he was working for Campus Crusade. Long story short, we've been going ever since uh, I met the wife who was taking a degree here at Westminster in California when I was here and that's how we hooked up. Now every year, uh, almost every year we're there, uh, I'll do a counseling conference. Okay, so uh, we've been through two parts of the introduction, we had two parts of the marriage and family and we did the advance in two, three and then they, they started having other topics. They said, well we'd like you to do intergenerational conflict. Uh, we'd like you to do peacemaking in the church. And they've run out of topics and came to this one. How do you deal with uh, people with psychological diagnoses? Because that's their desires to help people. Okay? So what we say here will apply there. This is really prepared for them. And I just shot this by the guys here and said, yeah, it sounds like a good seminar. But you have your notes in front of you. Let's go through that. And uh, hopefully, I know... On this one, there's going to be questions, okay? So we'll leave room at the, at the end. Everyone has what I call people paradigms, 
okay? People paradigms, okay? This advanced course in biblical counseling that I teach, and by the way, those are the pages. If you want that, my uh, email, I'll send you the notes for any of the courses I teach at seminary. That's gscipioni at rpts.edu. Okay? And in that course, I go over these people paradigms because, because everybody, okay, counseling has its language or people paradigms. And why do the people use paradigms, theologically or otherwise? They're shorthands, right? Oh, he's a fill in the blank, and then you sort of think you know how to respond to that person. And you don't want to do that because you want to go through an explanation every time or go through mime to explain. So uh, we use those as shorthand. Okay? Counseling has its language or people paradigms. Uh, tell you uh, with me is a very personal but interesting story. When I was in graduate school, okay, back up, I go to Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, professing believer, been baptized. Uh, as a young kid in a Baptist church, uh, thought I was a Christian. I got to seminary. I was so ignorant, it was pathetic. And this is how ignorant. I don't know if this will mean anything to you, but, you know, guys would come up to me and talk to me, students. Profs were real gracious. The students were a little rougher. Yeah, Scipione, you're an Arminian. I go, no, I'm not. I'm an Italian. I thought they were calling me an Armenian. I had never heard terms like that before, okay? And in the midst of all of this, I get converted, okay? I always used to tell them, uh, Chuck Smith calls them cemeteries, but I got raised from the dead in a cemetery, so that's really kind of cool. And, and I'll be eternally grateful for the doctrines of grace, which I was so angry when I heard it. Who, who's God to elect people? It's not American. We get to do the voting. I never realized that people didn't intend that way, but that, that was it. Jesus ran for Savior. He's done everything he could. Please, elect him Savior. Okay, and, and I came up to find out in the long run, it's God's choice. I have to choose, but it's God's choice that's the basis. And boy, was I angry. And God moved me through a whole process and eventually came to know him. After that, because I had worked with Jay Adams, and uh, the reason I got to work with him is everybody else left. They went off to Labrie or the pastorate and everything. I, only I, was left. <clears throat> so it was a deep pool that they had to pick from, me. <clears throat> so they brought me on and uh, meant, spent many a night talking to Jay Adams late into the night at Hatboro Orthodox Presbyterian Church building. One, what am I doing? Why am I here? What, this is crazy. I never heard of this stuff let alone where in the Bible should I go? How can I help these people? And he mentored me, and I've been eternally grateful for that too. Uh, now, in the midst of that, I said, well, I better go uh, take a psych degree if I'm going to understand this. So I went to Temple University and took a, a, an MA in psychology. And just, uh, I won't tell you the whole story, a lot of fun things. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I found out that there's a lot of nice but ignorant PhDs, you know, who don't know who man is or what to do with them. So I walk into one course, all graduate students, either master students or PhD students, like this, okay? And uh, the teacher has a brilliant design to the course. Now it's interesting, you have to know this lady was the daughter of a woman who went to a Baptist church. And I think her mother was a believer. 
this woman wasn't. She walks in and says, you have an assignment for next week. Here's your assignment. Ten-page paper. Who is man? What's wrong with him? And how do you fix it? And like panic settles over the class. What? Who's man? What's man? What's wrong? How, how do you fix this? Is and people are going. This is hard. How do you do it? And I go, gee, this is simple. Romans one, two, and three. What's hard about this? God's already said, "Who's is who's man? This is what's wrong. This is how Christ fix it." So I wrote a paper to that effect. <clears throat> Believe it or not, I got away with it. Got a decent grade, and of course, the design of the course was really brilliant. You look at all the books read the books, you look at movies and see Albert Ellis and all these other famous psychologists counseling someone, and then at the end you write a paper on what? Who is man? <clears throat> What's wrong? How do you fix it? See? I think that was a pretty, uh, really kind of a brilliant uh, design to a course. All that is to say is that was people paradigms. And of course at the end I walk up to her and says, let me guess, I'm going to get Romans 1, 2, and 3 again. I said, sure. Uh, could I critique them from a biblical perspective? And she was gracious enough to let me to do that. Now, all that's to say, that course hits what we're really looking at tonight. Who's man? What's wrong? And how do you fix it? And there's really uh, basically a, a world's eye view of this and a biblical view. Okay, and how do they interface? So not everyone is conscious or admits his or her paradigms, right? Uh, the person who's living for pleasure doesn't usually say, oh, I'm a hedonist, you know, and I think the only real value in life is feeling good. Okay? Or there's few of them left now, a rationalist that goes, if it doesn't make sense, you know. I had in graduate school another man who was very interesting, Jewish man, Dr. Goldberg who said to me, there's only one absolute truth, that there is no absolute truth. Only guy that didn't mark on a curve. He marked on an a I did point out to him at one point that that was a contradiction. That was not a smart move on my part to point out his inconsistencies. Uh, and it showed in my grade. I'm not bitter. I got a C in the midterm. An A in the final, C was one-third, that was two-thirds, and I still got a B. So, anyway, I'm not bitter or anything like that. Okay, so everyone has people paradigms, okay, and we're going to examine them. The history of psychology and philosophy really go hand in hand. If you take a history of psychology text, they'll start with the Greek philosophers. And they'll go through philosophy right up to the 1700s, when more experimental you know, and scientific psychology came into practice. And, and so the history of psychology and philosophy really go together. And now in postmodern uh, movements toward eclecticism. So if you, if you go into most universities at this point, they're all contradictions in terms, right? What does universe mean? Unified knowledge and truth. No one believes in that anymore. So in most places, uh, psychology is broken down into eclecticism, whatever works. 
grab a little bit from here or there, piece it together, and whatever seems to work, let's go for it. And everybody's really saying, it doesn't matter what techniques you use. One thing that's interesting, even pagans are going, it's the kind of person you are that makes the biggest difference. And again, uh, uh, Jim mentioned that he just saw something on the news that uh, found out that uh, people realize that psychology, uh, by and large, there's real some sincere, nice people, pagans in it, but it doesn't really help people. So popular culture is shaped by these psychological paradigms, diagnoses. Now, is anybody not familiar with the DSM, what the DSM is? The Diagnostic and Statistic Manual, okay? It's gone through many reiterations since the 50s. It's come out, what will come out in August is DSM-5. But there have been several revisions, so there really is 3, 3R, 4, you know, and so it really ends up being way more. But uh, this is what they do. They get diagnostic and statistical categories, and they group them along certain groups and they give those diagnoses, some of which you'd be familiar. Bipolar, bipolar one, bipolar two, schizophrenia, obsessive compulsive, <clears throat> all the things that are familiar. Those are categories out of the diagnostic and statistical manual of psychological disorders. Now, to complicate it, the Europeans have something very similar, but it's a different name and so when I go over there, I can't talk about the DSM, but it's basically the same, uh, same kind of approach. Well, uh, the DSM is the prevailing paradigm. So, for example, if you are a professional counselor, social worker, clinical psychologist, whatever, what you need to do, someone comes to you, and if you want to be paid for your service, which, by the way, most clinicians do like to get paid, you know. Uh, they don't work for what pastors usually work for, you know. Uh, but the bottom line is you have to get a category and a number. You put that into the paperwork, send it off, you know, to the insurance company for reimbursement. So the whole system is set up on here's a category that describes this mental illness, and then uh, that's the diagnosis, just like you get a diagnosis of pneumonia, viral pneumonia, bacterial pneumonia, etc. Okay. So that's the idea behind it. So what is the DSM? That's it. What is right or wrong with it, and how do you interact with its diagnoses? Because you're going to get people. I guarantee if you're counseling people, they're going to I am a, you fill in the blank. That's their identity. They'll come to you and say, I am a, I am obsessive compulsive. Uh, or I am a schizophrenic. You know, or I am bipolar. Yeah. You know, uh, they're not saying I'm George Scipione or Harry. No, this is my identity. So, Let's look at that whole thing, because when people come in, uh, how do you handle that? Do you become antagonistic? Do you agree with it? How do you handle that? We want to be wise, compassionate, loving, and deal with it. Okay, so uh, here's the, what I call the exposition of the word. It's just a 
thing I usually use for preaching. So it's the word is not the the DSM is not the Bible. Okay, it is the Bible though of psychology, and non-Christians will even say that. I can give you a string of quotes, which I won't. But on uh, people say, well, the you know the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual is the Bible of psychology, but it's not absolute truth like the Bible. Or you need to take it with a grain of salt. I'll tell you how it works. Uh, there's a, a tape available, or you could get it through CCEF, their national conference in 2011. And uh, you can go online, probably get that from them. I think you can, I don't know if you can get it separately, or you have to buy the whole package. But uh, a lot of his thinking, and uh, a man named Dr. John Babbler, who's in NANC, and teaches down at Southwestern Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Dallas. He's uh, a NANC fellow, wonderful guy, and some of their observations will help. So the history of the DSM, John Applegate, okay, a DSM primer in that national conference. And what he tried to do is to get lay people like you and me who are not medical doctors or clinicians technically to, to understand it. Now you have to understand what, what's happening. As psychology becomes more and more culturally acceptable, post-Freud coming into Western culture, people start dealing with people with weird thinking and weird behavior. And people have to say, well, how do we deal with this? How do we deal with this? So, so the approach is uh, often, and this is kind of a little simplistic, is we have 10 or 15 behaviors specific behaviors or, or general behaviors, and there's a list of those, and they'll say something to this effect. If you have seven of the ten, or six of the ten, for more than three weeks or three months or whatever the period, that's the general kind of gist of it, then that label fits the person. Now, what, what's the strength of this? if there are any, okay, to think it through. Well, it's obvious, let's be as charitable as we can. Even though it's non-Christians, dealing primarily with non-Christians, it's real people trying to help other, other people. You have the homeless, you have people, they're there. See, so if you go, if you go uh, on the freeways, I don't think it's probably changed since I left San Diego, San Diego in 06, I mean, you still have people go, homeless, you know, need food, please help, God bless. You know, the one guy he liked was, why mess around? I just want another beer. Okay? So, so, but there are real people, and you see them, and you have to respond to them, ignore them, what, how do you view them, what's going on in their lives. And, of course, each individual stands there begging for food, they may be real. There may be some people who've done that and actually made thousands of dollars through the year, all tax-free, of course, because you don't have, can't declare it. Uh, so there's all kinds of different people with the same behavior. But it's real people observing real people acting a certain way 
And so that's, that's, I think that's a strength. Two, uh, put this in parenthesis. This is uh, not edited real well. Real observable behavior problems. Put mental in, in uh, parentheses because people can't see mental states. Sometimes people say, well, I'm confused or I'm hearing voices. Okay? So that's really something inside of the person that you can't observe someone hearing voices or seeing things. They report it to you. So mental slash behavioral problems. So there are patterns that people experience and it's helpful to try to categorize those and say, okay, it's observable. Okay. People say, when should you stop counseling? I'll give you one that's probably, you could probably figure this one out. When someone pulls a gun and aims it at you and say, I'm going to blow you away. That's, and end the counseling right there. Okay? It's, it's obvious that that kind of behavior is not conducive to counseling. <laughs> but it's, it's observable. The guy pulls a gun or a knife on you, you know. Uh, uh, or if a guy starts hacking and cursing and screaming at you, the Bible, the Bi that's what's wrong with the world. It might indicate that biblical counseling is not the appropriate uh, mode of dealing with this person at that point. By the way, those are experiences that I've had. Okay, so there's observable behavior problems. It is an attempt, and an honest attempt, to try to be objective. You know, let's categorize it and measure it if we can instead of just throwing out terms. Oh, you've got a repressive id or, you know, all these kind of general terms. It's an attempt to be objective and then also to be accurate. Part of the issue was, uh, and this is not meant to be funny, and, and it can even happen with biblical counselors. Someone presents a problem and what do you get? Three different opinions on what to do about it. Does that ever happen to you? I had a woman in my congregation years ago said, uh, do I have to stay with this guy? I said, I think so, but I don't know. I'll check with three of the men that I respect more than anybody else in the world. Jay Adams, Wayne Mack, and John Bettler. Came back the next week and she says, well, I said, you're not going to be happy. She said, why? I said, I got three different answers. And she says, if you guys who are supposed to know the Bible can't figure it out, what do you expect from me? So uh, that, that's happening in, in clinical circles. And so there was an attempt to try to, to be uniform and to be accurate. Also a real attempt to try to help research. Okay. Now all of these have their inherent problems in them, and we'll talk about that, but these are, are helpful. Real attempt to help, to be helpful clinically. Okay. So all those things are honest attempts to just say honestly, human beings, if they're not in Christ, this is what they're trying to do. Okay? Now, what are the weaknesses of this approach? First of all, the DSM approach is limited to what? General revelation and common grace data. Okay? It's, it's, it's stuff that you can see and observe, and, and by God's grace, hopefully, the person doing it, Christian or not, is, is seeing it accurately. Now, that's not wrong. We do that all the time with cars and getting to the moon and heart surgeries and the like. But, you know, there's limitations. Because, see, if, again, our goal ought to be to bring people to Christ, and not only to Christ, 
but to grow up into Christ so that general revelation, you know, what we can observe in the world, not the Bible, and common grace, which allows non-Christians to see things accurately to some extent, that's, that's not going to help somebody become like Jesus Christ. So we don't throw everything out, but you realize, okay, the DSM approach is basically, I say this kindly, I don't mean it pejoratively, it's really a pagan approach. It's a godless approach. It's a uh, mechanical universe at the best deistic, but not even that universe uh, of you. Two, DSM is a-theoretical. What I mean, ah, you know, not theoretical. In fact, they tried really hard not to bring people's theories in to explain these behaviors because they knew that behaviorists, you know, would argue with Freudians, would argue with, you know. So what they try to do, you know, is not, you know, make a theory behind it. Now, do you see how hard that is? If I just describe something but I can't explain why it occurs, how can I fix it? Think about that. What's the typical thing? You go to a mechanic, you know, with your car. So what's wrong with it? And you go, it goes thumpity thump thump. When does it go thumpity thump? Okay, see what I'm saying? You can describe it, but you have to get into, was it in the wheel? You know, is the bearings, is it under the hood? Where, where is it to, to, to finally begin to say, well, okay, it's a problem in the exhaust system or it's a problem here, okay? So our theoretical minimizes the value of it. It's also uh, amoral, not in the sense that it always encourages people to do wicked things, but there's, there's no morality in it. In fact, it's a self-consciously trying not to judge right and wrong for people because, right, isn't that in clinical circles? That's judgmental, and being judgmental is really bad. One thing that the culture has, has really done in psychology has really, by and large, killed the idea of sin or something wrong. So consequently, it's not what's wrong with the person, what did society or their brain chemistry, uh, most of you are too, you know, most of you are old enough to remember. San Ysidro, 1980, I think it was three or four. Remember? San Ysidro Massacre. James Earl Huberty walks into San Ysidro, uh, you know, McDonald's, blows away 22 people from little infants in arms all the way up to older men who just retired and people in between, all ethnic backgrounds. It just blew them away. And people were always going, we need to do a brain biopsy to see what made him do this. Okay? And uh, we have cases like that all the time. This whole idea of not guilty by reason of insanity. You see, that's exactly what we get out of an amoral uh, approach to people's behaviors. Okay? I'm not saying everything that they do weird is sin. All I'm saying is that there's no right or wrong. The DSM is politically uh, pressure group sensitive, which undermines its objectivity. In fact, people will tell you all this time. It's really interesting. 
the guy who was in charge of DSM-4, you know, you know what he's doing now? He's bad-mouthing DSM-5. He's saying the approach is all wrong. It's, you know, so, so it's almost like people going after one another. The classic example of this that Thomas Zaz and others have pointed out, Thomas Zaz was a psychiatrist. He was in his 90s. I don't know if he's still living. He's up in Vancouver or something, about 95 years old. But he wrote a book, and then he pointed out uh, in the 70s, homosexuality was included in one of the earlier, I think DSM-3, uh, before 3, was as a mental illness. Homosexuality was listed. Well, how did it get out of the DSM? Gay therapists basically picketed the American Psycho uh, Psychiatric Association meeting and said, you know, we're going to walk if you don't take this out. So the political pressure took that out. Um, there's other political pressures people will tell you. I've got books that I quote in, the, in my advanced course written by non-Christians. You know, thing you would think I wouldn't hang out with and quote. But yeah, feminists, radical feminists who basically go after this thing and say, this is male-dominated, and there's some truth to that, male-dominated, and, and these categories of what? Making a menstrual cycle as a mental disease and you don't have other stuff for, you know? And, and so uh, a lot of research into how politics, and here's some of the politics, not in terms of uh, political parties. If you spend 20 years of your life trying to prove a psychological theory, and you get grant money for it. And you do all your research and you prove that your theory is wrong. Are you a good scientist? Yes, you're an excellent scientist, but you don't get grant money for proving yourself wrong. You know, so when people go, that category I don't think really exists. You know, and the data, people resist even just changing the label, let alone the identity. See. See, there's a lot of vested interest, and I'm not saying every research scientist is like this at all, but they're sinners. And there's a lot of money that goes into research, and if we think, you know, Joe and Josephine scientists are absolutely pristine, pure, and only after the truth, you know, we're fooling ourselves. So there's that kind of uh, pressure. Uh, again, and DSM diagnostic labeling can backfire and create problems, a victim mentality. We have a man who had an underground radio show in Pittsburgh. Most of you all here might think everything in Pittsburgh is underground, but you know, a, a real underground, you know, uh, over the internet. And this guy wore literally a flak vest to bed. He was really, really, he killed two, three policemen because he had been in for domestic violence, beating his mom. His mom called the police one night when he came in, and uh, he was down in the basement with the flak jacket, a lot of arms, and he blew policemen away. Now, he is going to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. Now, here's the deal. Whatever was going on with that guy, he was prepared enough to prepare a trap for the police. So you can say, well, he was impaired. Well, I think he knew exactly what he was doing, okay? So it's, it's the Pygmalion effect. I've got that listed. 
Um, uh, I'm told this by med students. I don't know if it's true or not. You become an intern. You know, you go to do your medical residency, and you kind of get the intern syndrome. All of a sudden, you start having all the symptoms. <laughs> oh, I, I feel like that sometimes, too. And all of a sudden, <laughs> I think maybe I'm sick. You know, you start taking your vitals. You know what I'm saying? It, it almost creates the, the identity. Okay, so that's some of the weaknesses. Now, what about the biblical approach to mental disorders? Well, what's the history of biblical revelation and redemption? I don't need to go into a lot of details, but, but guess what? Since the day that Moses put pen to the paper, you know, or God's finger to the stone, is there any mistakes in the Bible? Is it adequate? I mean, that's exactly what we're saying. So what are the strengths? Well, special revelation. God gives the necessary grid to examine creation, history, and redemption. <clears throat> the Bible will not tell you the molecular structure of a chemical. It won't tell how your endocrine system works. That has to be done by observation. But if you don't put all of that data into a biblical framework of who man is, you can come to the conclusion that our culture has. Man is nothing but a highly complex mammal, not the image bearer of God. And so what do you do with mammals? Let's be honest, what do we do with most mammals? We breed them, right? That was Margaret Sanger. You know, we, we, we can breed Italians and other unwanted minorities. We can weed them out of the, the gene pool. I mean, if you don't know Margaret Sanger, you should. You know, Planned Parenthood, the founder of Planned Parenthood, she, she thought Hitler was the best thing since sliced bread. You know, she was in the eugenics, good breeding, okay? So whoever gets on your hit list gets wiped out, you see. So, uh, God gives us the necessary grid to examine creation, history, and redemption. Two, saving grace and the Holy Spirit help us to see life through the mysteries. Calvin's concept of glasses. I can't see life clearly apart from the lens of Scripture. We'd have to add to that, too, a regenerate heart. Because if you're blind, you can you know, put the Scriptures up and, you know, Carl Sagan and others don't get much out of the scriptures. Three, the biblical worldview is true as the true basis for science, okay? And uh, it's our view of scripture. Let me just read my, my standards. I think most, most of you are familiar with the Westminster Confession of Faith or the London uh, Baptist Confession, which uh, are two uh, of the finest uh, theological documents, I think, that have, have ever been penned. Um, and listen what we say, uh, or most Protestants would say. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture, or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men, Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God, the government of the church, common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the Word, 
which are always to be obeyed. Section 9 about the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself, and therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. And finally, 10, the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion, and I would add here, all the controversies of anything, are to be determined, and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, private spirits, are to be examined, and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scriptures. Now, obviously, the Scriptures are about men and salvation, not about endocrine systems and bizarre behavior. But that's the framework. Five, we're bound to... we are are to live bound by the Bible, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The things that are revealed are for us and our children. The things that are hidden are for God. So if you want to know something that God hasn't revealed in Scripture, you're asking for more data than God says you need. And Bruce Walkie wrote a good book about that called Knowing the Will of God, a Pagan Concept, implying that if you want to know occult or hidden things, you're asking for more knowledge than God's given you in the Word and that that's not appropriate. The Bible gives, I think, descriptive, diagnostic, and directional clarity, even if it's not full and comprehensive. So James 1. The Bible is sufficient and superior, 2 Timothy 3, 2 Peter 1. Now, what weaknesses are there in the scriptural approach? None that I can see. The Bible is not, on the hand, a Merck manual or uh, a physician's desk reference to tell us those medical things. But it is the framework from which true medicine ought to be practiced. Now, there's a book list here for you. Being Christian in your medical practice. You can look that up on the web with James Holla. He's a rheumatologist who's written several books, including this one. He's a NANC fellow, so he's certified to counsel and to, and to supervise NANC uh, people who are training. And uh, just to summarize real quickly, there's the Greenville Ambassador International um, written last year, or published last year, I should say. His whole contention is <clears throat> the source, we're not going to throw it all out, but the source of most modern medicine is exactly the same root that it was in Greco-Roman times, which is pagan. You notice the snake symbol was a religious symbol that the uh, guilds actually, so there was worship, okay, of pagan deities. Now that doesn't mean everything's wrong with it, but you have to understand there's a non- biblical view of man and what's physically wrong with man. That all comes to play. So the Bible itself, to be honest, can be misused, can it? People do it all the time. We, we misuse it, we beat people up with it, we misinterpret it, etc., uh, etc. Et the interpretation can be off, but remember the Bible is very clear. Don't add to my word, God says. Don't subtract. 16 ounces to a pound don't mess with it. The Bible is perfect. 
Secondly, don't deviate to the right or left. The word and the word alone. Uh, the application may be wrong as wisdom from above, James 3 and 4, is needed. Now, uh, now how do they interact? And then, then I'll wrap up and, and let you go. This is general, so it's not talking about specifics. I'll have to do that this summer about obsessive-compulsive, about schizophrenia, etc. Uh, and there are categories. Mood disorders, how people feel, and they give drugs for that, and there are the way people cognitively think, whether it's organic, like Alzheimer's, or dementia, or whether it's schizophrenia, where people, uh, something's not working in terms of the way the brain and body are working. And now I think they're very helpful, and I would suggest you get a hold of this if you can. Uh, John Babbler, Biblical Critique of the DSM-4. The NANC National Conference 2007, and I believe Sound Word, you can look them up on it, out of Indiana, they carry the library for that, and you can get that just a CD, it's just a couple of dollars. It's very well, uh, just worth having. And I'm kind of summarizing uh, some of the stuff that, that he has said that I think is, is helpful. One. He starts out by saying, look, when you deal with someone who comes in with a label or somebody who's talking about another person with a label, what do you do? He says, I think it's fruitless for you to say that doesn't exist. When in fact, often it is, it doesn't exist. A lot of the mental disorders really don't exist as a disease or as a physical problem. There's physiological problems going on. I'll give you a quick, quick example. Depression. Was David depressed after he committed adultery with Bathsheba and he killed Uriah? You may argue with the terms, but he was upset, right? Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 51. Well, you know, when I didn't confess my sins, you know, he knew he was wrong. It wasn't until Nathan came, confronted him, that he repented. So, so he was hurting. Uh, he was feeling bad, and I could venture to say there were physiological changes in his body. In case you all don't know what the fever heat of summer is, you read, ever read that in the Old Testament? That's Santa Ana's. <laughs> I kid you not. It's the, it's the dry east wind, Sirocco, off the desert. You know, just think, California, right? SoCal. What's to the west? Ocean, okay. What's to the east of San Diego? No, not desert. Before the desert. Mountains, that's right. And what is it? If you know, rain shadow effect, right? The, the moisture comes off the ocean. The mountains strip it off, and then there's pure desert. That's Palestine. Very, very similar. A little different flora and fauna, but that's that kind of... The fever heat of summer. He says, when I didn't confess my sins, it was like I was daily living in a Santa Ana. I was shriveling up under the, the heat of the guilt of my sin in God, okay? Now, I venture to say if we did a, a physiological test on him, perhaps the neurotransmitters in his brain had changed. Some too little, some too, too much, whatever it would be. Okay, but what triggered that? What triggered that? That was sin. Yeah, there was a physiological change 
but it was triggered by the heart. I know of other cases where people are what we would call depressed, and it's not sin-based, it's a brain tumor. I've had cases like that where people are, are having projectile vomiting, which from little my, my med personnel tell me, the, one of the first things you think about is a brain tumor. They did, this is back in the 70s, they did it, they didn't see anything, so they said she doesn't have a brain tumor. Guess what? She had a brain tumor. And she was put into a, a mental hospital and an internist who was doing a psychiatric, you know, rotation, he looked at her and goes, you know, we don't, I, I, I want to hold up on the ECT, electroconvulsive shock therapy. I want more tests. She had a brain tumor. Okay. So she had a physical problem, but that was triggered by a problem in the body. Uh, Hala tries to use a simple phrase, in a body problem and a with-the-body problem. And in-the-body problem is when the, bo when the body's not working properly because something's wrong. A with-the-body is a bodily response to circumstances and life as, as a person. So he says, look, you can argue till the cows come home. I don't think he used that phrase, but you can argue and argue, but people look at you and go, dude, I know people like that. I got a roommate that lives like that. So he says arguing that obsessive compulsive or doesn't exist won't get you anywhere. Yeah. So uh, the descriptive reality DSM should not be deniable. Now I think there are some distortions, and I think if I pressed them, he'd agree. But uh, but basically there it is. Two, the social sciences are not sciences. It's people's best approximation. If you really want to know what social sciences are, they're world and life views. That's what they really are. They're world and life views. They're views to try to explain who people are, what goes wrong with them, how to fix it. That, that's what social sciences are doing. Uh, three, the whole, and this is the brilliant thing that he said, the whole is not greater than the parts. Maybe you've heard that phrase. What he means by that is if you've got these three or four or five different bizarre behaviors and God and his word address those, then obsessive compulsive is not greater than the sum of those parts. See, that's simple, but it's profound. Okay, well, if I get these five things, that equals obsessive compulsive. Obsessive compulsive is a mental disorder that the Bible doesn't address and therefore go to meds or something else to get the answer. And he's saying, no, look, all these, same thing with ADHD, my wife's talking on now. Everyone goes, ADHD? There's no clinical proof for ADHD. There's, there's no test that can be given, okay? But people notice, kids, I, I would have been labeled that. <laughs> I know I would have been labeled that as a kid. In fact, now they're saying, if you're like this, you know, my family laughs at this. They say, Scipione, Dad, you're just like this. You know, you often walk away in the middle of a sentence, just walk off and bozo out or whatever, okay? Um, actually, my, my daughter's back there. They diagnosed me with a pan-disability disorder, which is one from every column in the book. You know, have one of the symptoms of all these different things, so it's pan-disability disorder, okay? Uh, so the label, you see, doesn't help because, you see, if all these five subparts are addressed biblically, 
patience, kindness, humility, etc., then we can address it. And he talks about a woman who came and said, I'm obsessive compulsive. And he says, let's drop the label. No, I'm obsessive compulsive. No, well, let's talk about it. What makes you obsessive compulsive? That A, B, C, D, E. Well, guess what? The Bible talks about A, B, C, D, E. So let's talk about A, B, C, D, E and how God says to address it. And by the end, they weren't arguing about excessive, obsessive compulsive. They were dealing with her heart and her behavior issues from a biblical perspective. So I think he's so wise in that. The Bible addresses all the parts, then deal it. So B, accept the label. I put accept in quotes, okay? Um, I don't like to argue with people about labels anymore because it's just not all that helpful. Uh Um, Oh, okay, accept the label and review the DSM criteria. Find out who gave the diagnosis. So if someone says, I'm obsessive compulsive, or no, make it simpler, I'm depressed. Oh, you are. Well, tell me what's depression. Well, you don't know what depression is? You don't describe it. When did it happen? How did it come about? Oh, and by the way, who told you? Well, I looked on WebMD. No, seriously. You know, and I came up with this myself. I'm depressed. Or, well, you know, I talked to my mother. She was always depressed and on psychotropic drugs. And I talked to my grandmother. She was just like this. So I figured I'm, well, that's self-diagnosis. Or, as more typical today, it's a family physician who says, oh, here, go take this. Get a prescription. And it's not even a specialist, psychiatric or otherwise, that looks at that. So, so okay, how did you get this label? And, and uh, describe to me how you think and feel. Uh, translate the label into biblical categories. Negotiate the final authority of God and his word just gently. Well, do you really believe that God has wisdom on this? Yeah. And then postpone the issue of drugs, because that will usually be involved, until the person is growing enough to consider tapering off under doctor's supervision. You're not a physician, unless you happen to be a physician, so you have no right to be tinkering with meds or that. And that becomes, again, a secondary issue, whether the label and the meds, they're secondary to the issue of, do you love Jesus? Does Jesus love you? And does your loving Savior have answers for you? Now, there's always the fact that there might be something physically wrong with the person that nobody knows. So be very gentle, okay? There could be something wrong with the person, and the doctors don't know everything. And, in fact, we might even find out that there's something physically wrong and we have no cure for it. That's why it sounds strange. It's better if it's sin than it's sickness. Because the blood of Christ takes care of sin and the Holy Spirit can sanctify you. But we don't always know this side of heaven where God will cure you. So I hope that's helpful. Uh, That's a general approach. Let me wrap up. You need a wise pastoral approach to those with psychological diagnoses. Praying with them, data gathering, asking good, open-ended, gentle questions. Uh, Don't box them into a corner. Involvement with the counselor. That's really important. And uh, I, I think you've got to be careful. I've exposed my kids to people that shouldn't be in the home, but people who have lived with us. Uh, you've got to show them the love of Christ and uh, uh, got to be involved with them. D, wisdom in interpreting the data biblically. E, instructing and persuading the counselee to see things from God's perspective 
and ask God for wisdom to determine the best approach, direct or indirect. And uh, uh, be humble in your diagnosis and uh, uh, diagnostic process and conclusions as God alone knows his body and spirit perfectly. But always, always, what I said about treat him as an image bearer of God. Treat him as an image bearer of God. When my mother, Ruth's grandmother, was dying of uh, Alzheimer's, she couldn't pray, she couldn't respond or anything. The only thing she could respond to at the end, interestingly, was old hymns that we would sing. Then you could see her mouth moving. And Eileen, my wife, uh, would say, you know, we know the inner man's being renewed day by day, but boy, oh boy, it's hard to see through the outer man decaying. And yet, I always treat her as my mom. And, uh, you know, if a person is really still not cognitively there, you hold them accountable. Now, Mom, you know it's not really best to put your depends under the bed, you know, because they get stinky there, you know, and we, you know, like a little two-year-old kid. But you always treat this person with dignity and as responsible. Not fully, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't hold somebody who's drunk, you wouldn't let them drive home, right? They're responsible, but they're not capable at that point. So it's a tough call, okay? But they're always an image bearer of God. They're not just a pile of junk and a bunch of molecules. Two, you need to face psychological diagnoses in the context of discipleship. Although he may be different in some significant ways, and, and, and different, he still needs discipleship. And uh, we talk about that in our courses. B, for example, of specific diagnosis, sees the study on worry, fear, and the, and the introduction and uh, stuff that I'll be doing in the, in the conference. Always seek the wisdom from above for each individual with individual or multiple labels. Patient and gentleness are needed, but never treat him as a victim. Limited liability, but liability nonetheless. People must be responsible for their limitations, liability. I'll give you one case study, and then, then we can talk. And there's uh, uh, Asher, Marshall, and Mary, uh, the Christian Guide to Psychological Terms, Focus Publishing. Babbler, you can write that in. That was re referenced above. Jim Holla, Being Christian in Your Medical Practice. And then there's a book that, uh, it's Charles Hodges was the guy that was out for the spring conference here for IBCD. Good Mood, Bad Mood. Good Mood, Bad Mood. I have a copy in there. Uh, Hope for Depression and Bipolar. A uh, uh, young man comes in here, San Diego, many moons ago. Uh, he was labeled a schizophrenic as a five-year-old. Had an extreme hatred for his mother. And... Uh, because, you know, well, you're schizophrenic, you can't do this. It was very bitter. He came in, and I said to him, I'm going to say John, it's not his name. John, look, you're just John. I'm Skip, you know, the sinner, and you're just John the sinner. You're, the label doesn't mean anything to me, okay? So we talked, and, and there was progress for about six weeks or whatever. And, uh, you know, and I was just treating him like a normal human being with some pretty bizarre thinking and, and, and other things. And we were really making progress till one day he came in and we got talking and, and he told me the incident. He says, you know, one time when I was psychotic, 
you know, I uh, was really angry, and I had a, a mannequin, you know, a, a woman, uh, the thing that they put clothes on in a store, that's a mannequin. So it's, you know, a likeness of a woman that they would put clothes on. He got this mannequin. I never asked him where he got it. But he was pouring ketchup on it, and he was stamping on the mannequin, you know, because he was mad at his mom. I said, well, what happened? I said, well, my real mom came and saw me doing this. She tried to stop me, you know, and I beat her up, and she ended up in the hospital. I said, well, John, that's really horrible, isn't it? Said, yeah, it is. I said, did you, I said, did you ever ask mom for forgiveness? She says, what do you mean? I said, well, didn't you beat your mom up and she ended up in the hospital? He says, yes, but I was psychotic. I said, okay, you were psychotic. Okay, maybe you didn't understand, but, you know, let me get this. You're sitting at the table. Let's say, here's a scenario. You're sitting at the breakfast table and you're drinking hot coffee or tea. Your mother's there and you accidentally knock the coffee over and your mom starts to get burnt. What do you do? Oh, you know, I help her real quick, you know, and try to clean her up. And, you know, I said, would you, uh, what would you, would you say anything? Well, he'd say, I'm sorry. I said, okay, okay. You beat your mother up and put her in the hospital and you don't even say, gee, mom, I'm sorry. He says, you want too much. See, because, see, here he was treated as a regular human being making progress, but he had to give up his identity as a mental patient. Had another pastor, uh, uh, he still comes down, Alfred Poirier, brought someone in years ago, and he told me he never forgot this. He was Italian, so he had to bring him to me. He's Italian, you know. And the guy came in, the guy wasn't working and stuff. He had been labeled a schizo, and he was, he was like on disability. And, and I probed and found out there didn't seem to be anything really wrong with him. And I said, you know, you really need to become responsible. His mother was there and everything. And, and, and I, was, I was gentle, especially for me, but I was really gentle and kind. And I said to him, you, there's really nothing wrong with you. you. You could work. You know that, right? He says, yeah. But he says, then if I did, I'd have to give up my label and my disability. So be kind to these people. It's scary to come out into the world and be responsible when you've been told all your life you're an X. And because you're an X, you don't have the normal responsibilities uh, of, of regular Christians because you're a whatever. Now, I know that's general. It's not specific, perhaps. I have other questions. But questions? Yes, ma'am. Okay, someone be bipolar. Okay, two different extremes. The question bipolar, okay? If you read the book, <clears throat> Hodges makes a case <clears throat> that <clears throat> there's now what they call bipolar one and bipolar two. <clears throat> Very few people get bipolar two, I mean one, designation. <clears throat> that designation is for people who have been psychotic, <clears throat> where they literally are not seeing reality accurately and they've had to be hospitalized for over a week. <clears throat> he thinks that there is something physically wrong, and I tend to agree, people who are labeled bipolar, who stay up for days on end, writing a novel, cleaning the house, that they literally begin to hallucinate because the body is not cleansing itself through sleep and other means. And literally, they can't think straight. 
that bipolar one is different than bipolar two, which doesn't have psychoses. There's another book that I didn't mention. Laura Hendrickson and Elise Fitzpatrick wrote a book called Will Medicine Stop the Pain or Help the Pain? I was, well, Will Medicine Stop the Pain? Where Laura Hendrickson, uh, you know, is a medical doctor, they work together, and she said, look, there's things that are given to change people's moods, and, and you really shouldn't give meds to change people's moods. There are meds that need to help when a person is literally psychotic. We don't know what's wrong with their brain. This seems to be the best that we can do at this present time. Okay, if a person's been labeled bipolar, I would take this general approach and say, okay, describe to me the last or the last three episodes and what do you do? Well, wait a minute. <clears throat> you going off and investing that puts the family, you know, isn't that a lack of wisdom? Well, maybe you need to make sure you're not in a position where you can go spend all the family savings. I would say that's irresponsible, and if we think about it, you know, it wouldn't be right. right away. But eventually, you say you have to come to see that that's irresponsible, irrational behavior. And when you get feeling like that, that you can knock off the market or whatever, you need to go to the deacons at your church or somebody that you're responsible. Because he mentioned cases in there, and I know of cases where people, uh, their moods don't change but they learn to submit to people and get accountability so they don't go off and ruin the family finances or anything else. And, and even though the moods don't completely smooth out, they begin to live differently and that begins to, uh, to affect them. Now at this point with, with uh, the psychotic, not, not seeing things accurately or hearing things that are not there, we have, we have cases where people actually have that experience, then the psychotropic drugs are the best that we can do at this point to help them with the psychosis. And she goes through those different categories and tries to deal with them individually. Well, we had two different ladies that one came in, the, the, their teenage kids was telling dad that mom is just bouncing off the walls. I mean, this isn't mom. So they, they bring mom in with that. And uh, Janet had her, she hadn't had a medical exam in nine years, so we sent her to our medical doctor. Well, here, lo and behold, she'd been taking Prozac for nine years after some other thing happened and never had been back to the doctor. The doctor's nurse just kept rewriting the prescription for her. Well, she wanted to lose some weight, so she started taking Herbalife. And the doctor said, with this Herbalife you're taking and that Prozac, it's like drinking 40 cups of coffee a day. He simply got her off of the Herbalife and he reduced her Prozac half, and she's mom again. The other lady was my mother's, I mean, my wife's mother, who started hallucinating, seeing little bunnies and sitting on the bed and this and that. And so we took her to a male clinic got her in for three days of going through everything. But what happened with her is she would go one day to urgent care and get a medicine for something, and the next time to uh, uh, emergency room, the next time back to the family doctor, 
and she was taking medicines that were being given for a symptom of whatever it was, plus a med, then a med, then a med, 15 medications she was on. They took her all off by one, and she settled right down. Yeah. Um, there's a well-known uh, psychiatrist that wrote a book called Your Medicine Might Be Your Problem, Peter Bregan. So that's why we need good physicians if you can. Now, if you're out in the if you're out on the mission field and you know you don't have doctors nearby, you got to do the best that you can. But that's why always biblical counseling has worked with medical doctors, preferably a Christian doctor who thinks biblically, because there are doctors who are fine Christians but don't think biblically. They practice medicine no different than than the pagan guy you know next door. So um, yes. Yeah, I have a Okay, cousin who's in the hospital, been labeled bipolar one. Right. so the struggle before he had this manic episode. Okay. That threw him in the hospital was the tension with his mom, with the family, just like. You know, he thinks he's like doing really good and he's adding more things onto his life. He right. finally could hold a job, started getting really involved in church, started serving. And then it's not, and then world, it, it was like, how do you walk that line where you see that it's like, this This might throw me into an addict, you know, you're doing too much. Right. You know, but they think they're fucking, you know. Right. Have you ever heard that? Right. Okay, now, see, that's the, there may be a physical problem but it's certainly paired with a heart problem, which is, dude, I know who I am, and I know what I can handle, and, and nobody can tell me what to do. I mean, I think 90% of the problems we all have without physical or with physical is that whole attitude. Hey, I, I know what's good for me. You can't tell me. See, that's where the accountability has to come in, not just for counseling, but just in the body, where somebody can come along and go, It can be. It can be. It works. Yeah, it can be. But on the other hand, you know, uh, Elijah would certainly have been labeled as depressed by today's standards after, you know, doing the thing on Mount Carmel and killing 150 prophets and, you know, a few other things, running, you know, on the power of the Spirit, you know, ahead of the, the chariot. I mean, dude, he was wasted. You know, he was physically wasted. But on top of that, it was, okay, Jezebel's going to kill him. So that's why you have to have, even a medical doctor needs good information. That's, uh, my Christians will tell you, the most important thing about medicine is differential diagnosis. What really is different? Because there are a lot of physical symptoms that could have different causes. And, and that's the other thing. Uh, if you can't do anything else, fine, treat it with the medicine. But here's the deal. I met a guy who went to seminary with years ago when I went to Pittsburgh. He doesn't, he's not manic depressive anymore in terms of, you know, mood swings. But he doesn't have kidneys that work. He's on dialysis three days a week. Because the lithium, now, now think about this. Lithium carbonate, okay, is a metal that the body doesn't produce. So, see, an, analogously, oh, you need lithium. No, 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 no. You don't need lithium. Lithium seems to work. We don't know why. A fifth of vodka might smooth out the, 
the, the mood swings. I'm serious. I'm not being funny. It might smooth out the, the mood swings. The body doesn't produce alcohol. It doesn't produce lithium. For whatever reason, it has this you know, mood stabilizing effect. Uh, but, but I think any common sense approach to medicine would say, if you can get that through herbs or diet or physical exercise, it's better to do that. For example, if you're depressed and you can get natural endorphins from running five miles, it's better to run five miles than to take a pill because you get the benefit plus the endorphins and you're no longer, you know, your mood's no longer down. Now, that's too simple, but uh, common sense would tell you we don't want the meds unless it's necessary. And secondly, let's treat cause, not symptom. If you have a fever, it's okay to give you something to reduce the fever, but we better find out the cause of the fever or you might die of an infection. And that's the problem with treating moods, you know, with medicine. We don't get a cause. At this point, we don't know why people become hallucinatory, you know, when they lack sleep. But that's pretty much probably for anybody in the room. With significant sleep loss, we would not be able to function. One and then two. Okay. Uh, my, my question is, <clears throat> after my first year of seminary, I went back to Russia for summer break, and we were doing, uh, going from village to village to, to, to evangelize, and one day we go to this village, and this lady you know, running toward us, crying, she said, are you guys Christians? Yes. Can you come to my house and pray for me? Because the, the ghost and the of my husband come to me every night and calling me to follow him. I don't want to die, she said. Mm -hmm. And I see him clearly. And so we go, I mean, of course I'm scared. I go inside and there is a hook on the ceiling. And she said he hanged himself on this hook. And she sleeps on that room. And there is a picture of him. Of his, you know, black mm -hmm. And is it, and I, I don't know what is it. Is it hallucination or... I don't know. I don't know enough information. I have to talk with her. I'd have to get more. I mean, she seems a normal person. I would tell you one thing, get rid of the hook. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that sounds too simple, but, you know, that's the first thing well, I'd say. I told her. Yeah. Get rid of the hook, get rid of the picture. See, you're all right. You're a good biblical counselor. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, it's, it's uh, do you believe that the, 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 the devil works in when through the body and through the... I do, and, and it's obvious that, you know, there are indications, but is that a real ghost? My guess would be it wouldn't be. It could be. I don't know for sure. But what I would assure her is, look, the gospel is the answer. Okay? Don't, you don't need superstition. You need the Holy Spirit all the time because we're going to leave, and just praying over the house isn't going to do it. You're going to have to have trust in Christ that he'll protect you. You know, all the things, you know, would need to do that. Okay, one more, and then I'll let you go, and I'll talk with anyone personally because it's quarter after nine, and, you know, I don't want you to turn into pumpkins, okay? But I'll be glad to stay as long as anybody wants to talk. Um, I talked to people who have gone through, like, psychological assessments or treatment, I guess. Mm -hmm. And then their argument is, I guess it works, like, the psychologist teaches you how to, like, how to think in different ways or how to, like, deal with the problem. And... My question is just how do we respond to those types of, um, like, they're, they're declaring that it works. So. Well, okay. But see, again, th th that's a pragmatic argument, and it may work, 
but it may work for different reasons. And the question is, here, here's, here's, here's one, uh, totally off that, but suffering. Should we try to get away from all suffering? I'd like to, but, you know, the Bible tells me God uses suffering to conform me to the image of Christ. So is that wrong for me to say, well, I've got to stay under the, you know, you have, to, you have to judge case by case. And when someone says, they taught me, well, what did they teach you? Well, if it turns out that they're teaching something that's close to a biblical principle, which is fill your mind with, you know, those good things. Well, okay, they're thinking not about bad things. This, it may dampen the fear or the worry or whatever, but at what cost? Have they really become like Christ, or have they matured as a person, or do they have a technique? See, the pill might work too. You know, knock myself out, you know, I don't have fear anymore. But then I wake up, I have to start thinking again, I might have the fear, plus I have a big egg on my head. You know, so I know it's silly, but, you know, I wouldn't even say, okay, I'm not saying it, it didn't work, but how did it work? Well, I stopped having fears. Okay. Oh, what was the fear? Well, of going to hell. Do you believe in Jesus? No. You should have. Okay. You ought to be afraid. <laughs> if your fear was going to hell and the psychologist taught you not to be afraid of going to hell, he didn't help you. <laughs> you say, well, I feel a lot better. Yeah, you feel a lot better, but you're still going to end up in hell. So, so again, I wouldn't say he didn't help you. Say, how did he help you and how are you better off now? Well, I, I don't feel bad anymore. Okay, Philip, and then and then we'll let you go. Did you have any thoughts after uh, suicide of Rick Warren's son? Did I have any thoughts about uh, Rick Warren's son? Uh, no, uh, other than the fact that you know, it's sin. Conscious? Who knows? Maybe he he had something physically wrong with him. Uh, I know if people doesn't say it's wrong, it's still or right, I should say, uh, it was wrong. It's still a form of murder, but it's not like we don't know what was going on, so I don't want to pontificate and say, A, you know, he's in hell. We don't know that he's in hell because there are Christians who have probably committed suicide. It's not the unforgivable sin. So when they do that, most of those cases, you know, I don't write a lot of stuff either. I keep my mouth shut. You ask my opinion in class, I'll tell you, but, you know, the older I get, the more I know I don't know. You know, so people go around pontificating, this is what happened or that one happened. But I think we can say murder's wrong and suicide is wrong. But beyond that, what can I say? I don't know other than, you know, weep with the family, put your arm around them, pray for them. I certainly wouldn't be cruel and say, oh, I'll say Rick, Rick Warren is this terrible theologian, you know, and that's why his son commits. Some people do that. Well, that's, that's this character assassination. It's stupidity and it's cruelty. The hidden things are for the Lord. So God knows why, you know, his son committed suicide and what he was thinking and what he thought he was accomplishing. I'm not God, so I don't know what to say. So, uh, you know, what I need to do is say, well, I can't help him. The next person who comes to suicide, this is a biblical way of trying to approach it before the person gets to that point. Okay? Excuse me? G. Scipione, G for George, S-C-I-P-I-O-N-E, at R-P-T-S. 
Reform, RPTS, like on the shirt, Reform Presbyterian Theology, rpts.edu. That's my email. Let's pray, I'll let you go. Father, we do pray this is such a difficult subject, and Lord, this has been such a kind of a high view over the whole subject. We pray that you'll give us wisdom and sensitivity. Uh, We really do believe that the scripture is sufficient, but not just ripping a page, giving a person a verse and saying pray, but wise application of biblical principles. Lord, um, have mercy on us and give us uh, the ability to take care of people who even have been labeled. Lord, uh, we know the wonderful label that we now have, sons and daughters of God. Help us to work out of that in Christ's name. Amen. Copyright 2013, IBCD, All Rights Reserved. More free audios can be found on our website at www.ibcd.org.